Welcome to On That Note. This podcast is for anyone who dances across disciplines, whether you're a designer, architect, or simply someone who is passionate about the creative process. We are your hosts, Alexis and Hazik. We've always played in the fringes of architecture and have now moved into different fields. In this season, we ask guests who have also danced across disciplines, asking them where they are now, how they got there, and where they want to go. Whether you're just starting out in your career or you're a seasoned professional, we hope you'll join us on this journey as we explore the ever-evolving landscape of creativity. On this episode, we speak to Tanya Sui, a PhD researcher at TU Delft, working with spatial analytics in circular economy. We talk about how her architectural education brings value to what she does today. This is quite a new topic, and it's being started by people like us. So all the people who are doing my kind of research have an architecture slash urban planning background. So space and so I suppose space and geography, you know, is, is architects sort of inherently have that sense. We also talk about what Doris coding has unlocked for her, her brief encounter with the not-for-profit world and how to spot an architect from a mile away. Mm. Hi. Hey Alexis. How's it going? Hi. It's good. It's good. I'm joined by a third person next to me. Today we have Tanya Sui with us. Um, Tanya, wide, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, so my name is Tanya. Uh, I originally come from Hong Kong. Um, yeah, I used to study architecture, but now I'm uh, doing research as a PhD. So I'm getting my PhD at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Uh, I do like spatial analysis for circular economy and sustainability related research. Very happy to be here. Hello, hello. Amazing. Wow. Very That's happy to impressive. speak to you. Yeah, really excited for today's session because um, Tanya is doing some very cool work and would love to dig into that a little bit. But before we start, maybe can you tell us a little bit about how did you get into architecture? Yeah, so I got into architecture. Well, I studied my bachelor's and master's in architecture. Um, honestly, I got into architecture because uh, my mom told me to go in. Classic. <laughs> she basically said like, oh, you're good at both mathy stuff and also artsy stuff. So probably architecture is the best. Um, I got in and initially really, really disliked it. Uh, probably mostly because it wasn't fully my choice. Um, but then I decided basically in year two of my bachelor's that like, oh, I'm, I'm here anyway. So I might as well make the most out of it. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up finishing my bachelor's and then ended up actually quite liking architecture, um, not loving it, but I didn't hate it anymore. And then, um, yeah, and then after my bachelor's, I worked for a year or two in like the kind of not-for-profit world. So like building buildings in like rural China and rural Morocco, and that felt kind of really meaningful um, and then I came to the Netherlands to study my master's. And then right. that's how I ended up in architecture. So where did you do your bachelor's? In the University of Hong Kong. 
right? Okay, so quite a quite a difference, Hong Kong and Delft. Um, as far as I know, very different, you know, focuses, very different emphasis on different things. Uh, how would you compare the two, I guess? I would say Hong Kong was really theoretical. Most of our professors and teachers, they came from the U.S. So coming out of like Cornell, Princeton, uh, Cooper Union. So they were super, super good at architecture theory and history. And then coming to TU Delft, that was much more technical, much more sustainability related. Um, I remember being very intimidated by looking at architectural detail details. So I bought like 20 copies of Detail magazine on sale. And I just like practiced detailing so much because I had no skills in that at all. Um, but yeah, those are the main, main differences. And also, I guess the work-life balance, like in Hong Kong, that, that was non-existent. Mm. Um, but maybe it was also because we were in bachelors and didn't know how to manage our time. And then master's was was way more balanced. Yeah, I think it's worth noting also, also that Delft University is in a 24-hour campus. So you weren't actually allowed to stay over. They would close the campuses, I think, at 10 p.m. the latest. Uh, they would lock it. And there's no place for you to store your models. So you do have to leave, which makes you rethink the whole I'm going to stay overnight in the studio, work all night and hang out with my friends because you literally can't. How's yeah. that for you, Isaac? Was it the same or? Oh, I mean, like in the con like in the context of Asian universities, closing off your studio would seem quite radical, no? To not have yeah. a 24 hour studio. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to jump back into the in like your bachelor's experience undergraduate. Um, I kind of had a similar experience because my parents uh, somewhat convinced me to do architecture um, saying that you know it's more professional and all that and I also didn't really enjoy it at first I found it really really tough um, but for me there were certain aspects that I enjoyed so I guess similar to you that you kind of find your niche and find your interests because architecture is it lends itself to being quite wide in terms of scope and so you can find your own little alleyways what what were those alleyways for you? Like, what did you enjoy most about it? I would say for me, I enjoyed the most was joining the not-for-profit world. I think the reason why I joined it was because I didn't really like architecture itself. So I really needed to find meaning. Mm. And the most meaningful thing I could do at that time for, for me was to join like not-for-profit and build hospitals and schools and stuff. Because I think like when you like when you pick a career, you can pick because you really like it or you pick because it's something really useful. Right. Like if you're a musician, for example, probably you picked it because you really like music. And next, OK, maybe your music benefits other people, but mostly it's because you like music. Whereas like if you want to be a doctor or something, then it could be because you like saving people and not because you like blood and vomit, you know, so like. For me, I didn't really get pleasure out of architecture. So I needed to go the other route and have like meaning. So mm. that was, yeah, that was how. And then I felt very satisfied. Like I was doing something useful and productive and then also visiting all these places I'd never visited before. So yeah. that was what I enjoyed. And did you That's kind cool. of carry that with you, this kind of search for meaning and purpose into your master's and going to the Netherlands? Was that part of the motivation? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just wanted to do something overseas and the Netherlands was cheap 
and spoke English. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. There is no judgment here. But I want to wind back a little bit to what you said on, you know, that you did all this nonprofit work and you really enjoyed it. Like you felt satisfied. So why why didn't you stay in that world? Why didn't you keep doing that? Um, I think I discovered sustainability in Tio Delft. And that was also another source of meaning. Mm. Like, again, I think for a lot of people, especially in the sustainability world, it's like, yeah, that's an, like you never question, oh, was is what I'm doing relevant? Like, yes, it is actually like it's what what it's like the end of October and we're like 20 degrees in the Netherlands. Yeah, it's like ridiculously warm. It's like there's no way what we're doing is not relevant. So, yeah, that just transferred. And what was your kind of what was the touch point into sustainability, I guess, because again, sustainability is quite a, it's a wide term. It's kind of a catch-all term, uh, similar to architecture, you could use it as a catch-all term, but how or what made you kind of lean into that? Mm, I guess I just took a couple of courses. Like I knew it was something that was important. It wasn't touched on at all in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. And I got interested in circular economy, which is like a big topic in the Netherlands. Um, yeah, I did a did a course with Studio Rotor. They're a Brussels-based architecture firm where they basically reuse all kinds of old architectural components and stuff like that. Mm. Found them super inspiring. So that's how I got in. Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting. I mean, now that you mention it, I remember there's a... Dutch startup I don't know whether it still counts as a startup it's been a few years now but what they do is they catalog all the available material in the sense that material that's used in buildings right now that may be demolished or you know taken apart in the future and they catalog that for um, future developments that might want to reuse that material so they kind of build a library of existing um, steel and trusses and all that stuff yeah, so I guess, yeah, yeah, the Dutch is really leading the way. Yeah, and and Delft definitely has, I remember on campus, they have this facade um, project where they reuse the facade and it, that facade like, goes places. And these kind of topics are pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also it's, it's like, um, it's sort of a very much like a systems view mm -hmm. of architecture. So like rather than seeing a building as an object, which is what I did a lot in Hong Kong, you like, in terms of form and morphology, you see the building as part of a larger context, a larger system, like where do the materials come from, the concrete, the, the stone had to become from here, the sand had to be extracted from the middle of the sea, the, the cement had to be, you know, so there's a whole life cycle of the building uh, before it's been constructed. And then after it gets demolished, there's also a whole life cycle of the building components that get reused. So that's kind of what's really attractive for a lot of people about sustainability, this kind of systems thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting that you're saying that because so for me as well, like after I did my undergrad, um, I did a bunch of random stuff. But one of the was I got involved uh, with a nonprofit that was doing agriculture. And then from there, I got to uh, like learn about the food system. And that is super intertwined. Like once you get into that and you realize just, you know, you never look at rice the same again, you know, because you just see all the processes that go into getting that bowl of rice in front of you. Um, and I guess that's very similar to a building. 
you can look at a window and just understand the sand the sand that had to go into making the glass and coming from all over the world and then just landing in your wall um yeah fascinating I want to touch back on something you said earlier about architecture as an object versus systems. I think that's very interesting because it reminds me of all the critique I've gotten throughout my architectural education, which is mostly around, you know, where is your building? Because I would look at things at this level, uh, at a systems level, look at how things flow and how things come. And But at the end of the day, the project was not about a building. It wasn't about designing this space, right, this thing. And that was a critique I would get. And I wonder what, what was it like for you, for someone who very obviously is interested in systems over object? Yeah, actually, my my students now, so I teach some master students in architecture in TU Delft. I always ask that question, where is your building? This oh. is a building project. Because in the end, the, the master's uh, degree, yeah. the degree is given to an architect. You have to prove that you can draw a, a drawings of a building but and if you just it. designed a system then I can't give you that degree yeah so I always say like look the stuff you're doing is super interesting I love it but you have to make a building does that and happen like, often that that there's no building well there is a building but it's kind of hard to it's sort of forced right yeah for example there's so many uh students that do farming yeah yeah. Uh, oh, agriculture. Yeah. Agriculture, agriculture. It's so hard because they all end up just having agriculture on the roof and in the courtyard. So it's like not possible sometimes to combine the building and the system. Yeah, but that's a that's a good point because I I also did like this agricultural agriculture project, and I remember clearly in the moment thinking like the whole solution to this project is not a building. In fact, the solution is to not have buildings; is to demolish more buildings. And it was such a difficult moment because you're doing an architectural course, you've been graded on the buildings you can design, the spaces, the detailing, but then you're, you you start thinking about things in a different way and you're exposed to this whole other world that what you're doing is maybe a lie, maybe you shouldn't be <laughs> designing buildings. I mean, um, on, on that note as well, just picking up on it, this might be going slightly off tangent, but there is often the saying in terms of sustainability and architecture that the most sustainable building is the one that already exists, right? And the most sustainable yeah. thing for architects to do is to not build new. Um, and I think that that is always intention, this, this like architecture and sustainability. And I wonder like if you had any, any opinions on it, any hot takes? Yeah, hot takes. Hot takes. <laughs> no, I agree with that statement, actually. Um, yeah. It's just not so sexy. That's why I'm not doing research on it. But it's definitely the, the yeah, architects should spend way more time learning how to renovate and refurbish buildings so that they can be relevant for present day use and also have like meet the energy standards and um, yeah, have proper insulation and windows and stuff like that for, for proper like current day use. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I also wanted to plug a book that I thought was <laughs> good, like a good example for me of talking about sustainability and architecture. So it's a book called Empire, State and Building by Kiel Mo. And he's someone who uh, mapped out basically the impact 
of the Empire State Building in terms of materials. So where did the materials come from? Where, which factories and which factory towns manufactured all the components of the building? How was it transported you know, to, to the building? Um, and I thought that was a good example of um, trying to understand the building as a system uh, and as like a sort of, yeah, as a snapshot of all these different things coming together in one place and okay. sort of staying in, in one form for like, let's say 30, 50 years. That's a nice visual. You can imagine all these lines and flows of materials across the globe all coming and concentrating in the Empire State Building. So we'll put the book and the author in the show notes so you can find it if you're interested. But let's go to, you mentioned all these different things and I'm wondering, are you still doing architecture now? No, I'm not. <laughs> so like my own research now, it's doing, um, uh, it's looking at circular economy and how the circular economy will transform the way our cities look like in the future. So, for those, you know, sorry, just for those who may not be familiar with the term, could you do like a brief one-liner of what it is? Yeah, so a circular economy is um, as opposed to a linear economy where you take materials out of the ground, use them and throw them away. A circular economy is how do you close material loops so how do you recycle, reuse, remanufacture materials and products so that we don't have to rely on raw materials anymore? So um, in the circular economy in the future, if we need to reuse waste much, much more, then the way our cities will look like will change. For example, we will need more industrial land to recycle and refurbish all of this waste that we are going to reuse. Mm -hmm. Maybe these material loops will become much more local. So instead of having these global supply chains where materials ex extracted from you know, Africa and then the copper goes to China to make a phone and then the phone comes to the Netherlands, you have you know, um, much smaller and much more local material loops um, so that would also change like the infrastructure and the land use. And so my research and also my colleagues' research um, is to yeah, try to understand how circular economy will affect spatial development. Oh. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll just one more sentence about my research. So more specifically, I'm looking at um, the idea of circular construction hubs. So this is an idea that has been come up by uh, both companies and the government in the Netherlands. So these are facilities that collect, store, and redistribute construction waste so that they can be reused in new construction sites. And so one question that I'm asking is where should these hubs be located? So what's a good location in the Netherlands for these kinds of hubs? And then the second question is what's the scale of these hubs? So should there be one hub per neighborhood? Like, mm -hmm. should we have one on every street corner? Should it be one per city, one per province, one for the whole country? And so you can use spatial analysis to answer these kinds of questions. So it's like based on data, based on different uh, analysis methods, you can try to answer these questions of where these hubs will be located. So that's my research. Has nothing to do with architecture. <laughs> I have so many questions. I mean, it has everything to do with architecture, I feel, because if if it does go ahead and it sounds like it's the best way forward, 
Um, and then, you know, it will it will change how architects specify what materials they use, right? They're limited to what is available in the sense of what's there now. And like the whole time you were talking about it, it just made me think like one day, if if all goes your way, we won't have the word waste anymore because nothing will be waste. Everything's just the next resource. Um, yeah, amazing. But I, I wonder whether we could for those who might be interested, how did you get into research? How did you step away from architecture into doing what you're doing now? So when I was doing my master's in TU Delft, um, we had two parts for the final master's thesis. The first part was to do research and the second was to do an architectural design based on the results of the research. And when I was doing my research, I found out that I really enjoyed research. Um, and I got along well with my supervisor. And then when I got to the end of my master's, I just wanted to explore this research direction more. So I just kept telling everyone that I really wanted to stay in TU Delft and I wanted to do research. And then so I, I got uh, offered a job by my supervisor and then I started from there, like being a research assistant, doing smaller projects. And then uh, my supervisor won a big project that could fund me for four years. And then that would allow me to do a PhD. So that's where I am. I'm in my third year now. Something that there was something very familiar about how you described the questions you were asking. And you said that spatial analysis could answer these questions. But I was fixated on the questions you were asking. And they, they sounded very much like how you would normally approach um, an architectural brief. Is there some element of that in the way you work? Do you refer to your time in architectural research or as an architectural student? Do you refer to any of the methods or the formats that you have used? Sorry, yeah, just, yeah. I'll go I'm ahead. sorry. just before like we dive into that, I just wanted to contextualize, which kind of faculty are you working under now? Is it oh, still I'm still within? under the Faculty of Architecture, but in urbanism. Right. Uh, yeah. So in Delft, there's, there's a bunch, and they call them under architecture, but urban, I feel like urban studies have their own thing going on, and it's really yeah, yeah. unrelated to architecture. Yeah, I guess the reason I'm asking is just, you know, kind of following on what Alexis was saying, carrying on the methodologies that you learned and picked up in your education, in your architecture education. So yeah, if it's still within the same department, I wonder, you know, does that influence how you carry out re your research compared to if if it was if it fell under another faculty, for example? Yeah, I mean, I was also I was thinking about this like this week because um, so the way I carry out my research is based on an advice that my fr other PhD friend gave to me. He's in software engineering, and he said there's a concept called the minimum viable product. So in, in I'm not an expert, but in software engineering, you basically, uh, let's say you wanna develop an app, you don't, and the app has five components, you don't make the first component perfectly until you go to the second component. You make the minimum viable product, so like the worst, shittiest version of the app, but all with all five parts so that you it works, and then you go again and again. So it's like layer by layer, improving the whole product um, instead of only doing one part perfectly and then doing the second part. So That's... it's kind of like where, the way I think of it is like uh, when you're sketching, 
So if I'm sketching you, Hazik, I will like draw your head and then some uh, uh, two eyes, some eyes and like <laughs> your body and nose and mouth, but really fast. And then I'll start putting in the details of your eyes and your hair and stuff like that. Instead of like drawing one eye like perfectly and then moving on to the next eye, mm. you know. So I that's how I do research. And then I also realized that that is how architects do their design as well, mm. like instinctively, because we design in scales, right? Mm. We start with one to 500. So it's the whole building, but at very low resolution. And then 200, 100, 50, 10. So again, it's that process of like every, every um, iteration, you are doing the whole product, but then in increasing uh, resolution. And so, for example, like when I do my research now, I'm writing a code for like spatial optimization of these hubs. So like where should these hubs be located? I write like the shittiest version first and it's like really stupid, but then I write it first and then I improve the little components and then again and again. So that would be how, um, yeah, how the architecture education helps with the way I manage and think about research. Yeah, the MVP is how we approach this podcast, basically. It's just yeah. <laughs> get it out there. But that's fascinating. Like I never, I never actually saw research in that way. But I guess now that you frame it, yeah. So I mean, it kind of always starts with a big picture scale, right? Like, why are you doing this piece of research? What is it for? And then I guess you jump into a bit of literature review, see what's already out there, what people already say. And then yeah, you just jump in tighter and tighter into it. Um, but I want to jump back to the questioning of it, because I feel like in research and in a lot of projects, the, the way you frame the question influences how the project then turns out. So what is, you know, I'm curious to know like how you approach that and have you been approaching that, you know, in a certain way since you were in architecture? Has it changed since you left architecture? And really trying to understand how is it that you go to a project, go to a research, project and then develop a question and then frame your entire work on it yeah that's a that's a really good question and I also think the architecture and education helped me with this framing of the question because um I'm gonna offend a lot of engineers here but I do think like if you're more like of an engineer and a tech background you're very good at uh uh having someone, when someone else sets you a goal and then going towards that. So like, I'm gonna make this material as cheap as possible or as light as possible or as the span as wide as possible, right? So those are like what you learn in engineering school and also kind of what you learn, you try to do in research as well. Um, whereas in architecture school, you're not given a goal. You have to set your own goal. So you, you're just given like, oh, this is a site and you have to build a here, but it, it doesn't tell you, the brief doesn't tell you um, what's important about this school, um, what's the context of this school. So as an architect, you sort of have to look at this site and there's like an infinite amount of things you can focus on. You can look at, uh, uh, yeah, like the shape of the school, the wider context, the education as a whole. There are many, many uh, infinite amount of perspectives you can take and then you are expected to pick one perspective and extract things from the site to turn it into kind of this red line or this narrative 
that explains like your design and, and why you're doing this design. And this kind of narrative building is actually, I think, kind of new, unique, even though I didn't do like law or uh, medicine or any other subject. But I think in architecture, you're really expected uh, constantly to be creating this narrative out of nothing, like out of reality, right? And so you can still have that narrative in research. And it's, yeah, it is really useful to be able to have that narrative because like research, especially like technical research, like a uh, spatial analysis stuff, it's like you have a lot of data, you have all these really powerful analysis tools, but you have to utilize this for a goal. And then you need, as a researcher, you're, you need to set that goal yourself. And the better the goal is, and the more coherent your story, the better the research becomes, the more people understand it, the more you're able to collaborate with other people, the more people will come to you for advice. So this kind of stuff, like the narrative uh, aspect is definitely, I think, like one of the strongest skills that architects have. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, hearing that kind of reinforces my question earlier about which faculty you're under, because I think if you were to take your research now, but under the faculty of engineering, for example, it would go in a completely different way, right? Like you would probably look at the materials themselves, look at their properties, et cetera. And you would, it would be a lot more objective and a bit hard, like cold. Whereas now it sounds like you're, you're coloring it with, you know, this question of where the circular hubs should be, I'm guessing kind of inferring from what you're saying, takes in a lot of factors, including the memory of the place, the kind of how the how the city functions as a system within with each other, and all of that. Alexis yeah, looks yeah. like she's being cynical. Cynical, what I'm saying. No, I'm I'm being curious. <laughs> I, I, okay. I wonder. I'm actually curious. That's a good question. That's a good prompt. So, if we take your research, for example, if you're looking at a spatial analysis of where to place the circular hub, what factors do you look at? Um, I still look mostly at quantitative factors. So like um, the accessibility of that location. So all of this was based on a bunch of interviews I did with circular hubs in the Netherlands. And so they told me about their location requirements. Like there needs to be, the storage space needs to be this big. It needs to be next to this kind of road. It has to be on this kind of land use category and things like that. So it's still very quantitative and less about like the history and the memory and things like that because that would be kind of hard to do like data analysis on it. Um, but I think you were saying that indeed, like if my research topic was in another faculty, like civil engineering or something like that, it would have a very different um, uh, yeah, purpose. So I can compare my research with actually um, industrial ecologists. Mm. So these are people who study like hardcore sustainability people. There are people who are doing like the actual uh, life cycle analysis and stuff like that. So they also do this kind of um, material mapping, but they do it in a much more uh, scientific or technical way. So yeah. they, they're, what they're really interested in is like mapping out where um, the materials are in somewhere like in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam. So if you look at um, this project called Puma, P-U-M-A, it's Prospecting Urban Mines of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So they use like these 
these sophisticated methods to map out in Amsterdam how much copper and how much steel is in the in the city, like as a map. So they are really interested in making increasingly accurate models of the world, yeah. what the world is, where the materials are. But then I suppose like because of my background in architecture, I'm sort of interested in speculating about the future, like based on this amazing work done by industrial mm. ecologists. So I take their data and then I think, where should you know these circular hubs be in the future? What will cities look like in the future? Mm. So it's more kind of design and and thinking Vision. of these goals. Yeah, Vision that's cool. Um, the the project you mentioned, Puma. I remember in the master's program um, in my studio, we used the Puma data set. We used their research outcome to then base our speculative projects on. But I remember my criticism at the time very clearly was that. We were taking this very concrete, well thought out, really precise research and then just speculating. And I guess there's a kind of beauty in that. But how do you feel about that? Is there a tension with you in the speculative side and then basing it in something more tangible and you know that you can actually quantify? Yeah. I would say I don't actually feel such a tension because. I guess because the research process in a PhD is so rigorous that I'm able to justify a bit like the speculations that I'm doing, but also I know what you mean. Like I also like I talk to a lot of industrial ecologists and they're always like, oh, what you're doing is super interesting and they never want to collaborate because I think they see me and they're like, is that even research? Like, is it not academically rigorous because in the end it is speculation yeah. um so yeah and in, indeed it's not so respected maybe by like hardcore scientists but it's like it's like uh governmental bodies and companies they're yeah. interested they're like mm. oh my god like for example the the circular hubs that i've interviewed i say like oh i'm gonna make a map that shows potential suitable locations for hubs and they're like yes we're very interested in that thank you very much you know that's, and also governments are interested as well yeah that's amazing that's yeah. especially yeah yeah i mean in terms of setting i mean the gov i'm assuming governments would be interested in terms of setting policy because it gives them a north star to aim towards um and private companies you know that's they're looking at opportunities and you're basically telling them and also selling them a vision, mm -hmm. selling them what their business could be doing in the future, right? And what people might be into. Um, and I guess, because I, I think the whole idea of what an architecture PhD is, what's the value? What's the inherent value? Because I think you come across a lot of people who say like, I don't know, like it's very blurry, right? Because a lot of it can either fall under a, a history PhD or uh, or sciences, and it's it's like where is architecture? What is what like if you were to do a PhD in architecture, what is it, and why is why is that an architecture PhD over something else? Um, but I think you touched on it in terms of being this bridge between the boring engineers. <laughs> and offering a vision for the for the future i guess um and, and also space yeah like it's spatial. Think, yeah architects we have a sense of space 
and scale. And it's so inherent that we think everyone has that. But it's not true. Like I get that when I'm talking to people outside of urbanism, outside of architecture, you can tell that space is not on their minds. Like for example, in in circular economy research, the study of space and circular economy. So like cities and regions and how they're shaped by circular economy. This is quite a new topic and it's being started by people like us. So all the people who are doing my kind of research have an architecture slash urban planning background. So space and so I suppose space and geography, you know, is is architects sort of inherently have that sense. So do not, uh, yeah, I, I sort of underestimated that when I started mm. researching. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's beautiful to know. And I think there's something about anchoring yourself in space, right? I think that, that to me is just such an interesting topic, especially with the digital the digitalization of the world. Everything is going online. Everything is starting to get more and more abstract as concepts. Uh, and having the space to anchor you, I feel like it's, it's a really comforting thing. It's really comforting to be anchored like that. But would you say um, that you're doing a PhD in architecture? No, no, it's not. Because, I mean, I think architecture PhD would be about buildings, I guess. If I, I'm I'm kind of strict, you know, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm sort of talking about cities and regions. So I would say I'm doing an urbanism mm. or urban planning PhD, mm. which is still related. Mm. There is a tension there. Architecture and urban planning, definitely, um, in the way we approach things. Because you see, in architecture offices, when we approach an architectural project, we kind of claim the urban setting of the place. We claim the immediate vicinity that the building is in. That's part of, if you sort of submit a tender or a competition for a building, you are mapping, you're doing site analysis, you're sort of dictating what the outside of the building will look and feel and flow like. So I, I think there's a tension there of like how much of it is urbanism and how much of it is architecture. But it's that's cool. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap yeah. indeed. I mean, I just want to pick up on like what you were saying just now and how how Alexis found it, found the beauty in kind of our perception, our ability to perceive space in that way and put it at the forefront of how we think about things, right? I guess it's like <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speak for for you, Alexis, but I guess it it kind of justifies our architecture education and sets (laughs) sets the value and validates what we've we've been doing. But for me, like I find it quite fascinating because I am very interested when you take a specialty and you collide with something else. Um, And not just, I mean, not just architecture, but anyone really, like if you take a landscape architect who then goes into doing sculpture or I don't know, a chef who goes into fashion and how does that, how does that collide? And I think, yeah, I think, I don't know where I'm going with that thought. Yeah, but I love, like, that is true. I also really enjoy it. Also, I read this book called Range or yeah. Switch or yeah. something. Oh, you know, yeah, okay, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But also I do remember, like, even growing up, sort of, I enjoyed being in different worlds. So I sang in a choir very seriously. We were like a 
really serious choir. So I was in the choir world and then I was in my own school world. And I really liked being in between these worlds. And also with architecture, you know, I really immersed myself in the architecture world and I really like architects. And then now I'm in the academia world, which is a completely different world and the system and things work differently. And yeah, I think there is benefit to being in different yeah. worlds. I wonder whether we can just touch on very quickly uh, on the people that you meet in these worlds. Well, especially for you now, I guess, in terms of like the architects you used to hang out with in masters, or maybe you still do hang out with them um, and the academics and, you know, all that. They're like, well, what's your what's your feeling? I well, I will always like architects because I grew up with them. I think I became an adult. And so oh. I I noticed that it's like you have a vibe. You know, when you meet someone, you know that they're an architect or they yes. usually, this happened a few times where they're like, you know, I meet someone new, we have like a conversation and like 15 minutes in, they're like, oh, also I used to do architecture. And I was like, I know, <laughs> I could tell, you know, knew it. <laughs> so I always really love architects. We can touch on the vibe of that, like how, how you pick up on that. Is it the way they dress, which is very superficial, or is it the way they speak about things, the opinions they have, how opinionated they are even? Because the fine architects are quite opinionated. I was in a room full of artists the other day, like fine artists, and I was speaking to someone. And then I said that, oh, my background's in architecture. And she was like, I can tell. And I'm like, how? Oh. She's like, the way you speak. I'm like, what? Like, Is that a good thing? <laughs> what does it mean? I don't know. Architects always talk about stuff. I find I'm always interested in the same things that architects are interested in, this even if true. it's not about buildings. Usually we never talk about buildings, this but whatever true. we talk about, it's like, I just love it. I mm. don't know how to describe. And how is it like in, in the academic world, academia or sustainability or the other worlds you find yourself in? Oh, I love the sustainability people. They're super nice, too. They have, they're similar to architects. I feel like Tanya just loves people. No, 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 no. With a time limit. Like sustainability people, you can tell also by the way they dress. It's like a lot of Patagonia. Oh, yeah. Green, brown stuff. And then they're all vegetarian, which is very sad because I will never be vegetarian. Um, Are we keeping that on like the record? Huh? <laughs> is that on the record? <laughs> yes. No, for sure. No way, man. Yeah. Like I will eat more and more vegetables, but I will never completely eliminate meat from my diet. Yeah. That is so sad. No. Yeah. I think there's an element here worth noting that that comes with culture and heritage and your identity and belonging and a lot of your memory growing up is tied to food. And eliminating that requires, like, it, it's not something that you just do at a snap of a finger, especially when it has become a trend and something. But we are... We, we digress. Off <laughs> on that note, we digress. On that note. What's next? Yeah, so what what's next in my career? Like, I'm near the end of my PhD. I have nine months to go. Probably I won't finish on time, but I'll have a year to go. Um, I don't know, because I recently had kind of a negative experience in at work, which made me realize how um, toxic academia can be. Mm -hmm. um, I think my conclusion from that experience was um, 
a place that lacks resources will yes create a lot of toxic behavior right so if you even if you compare like poor and rich countries it's like there's more crime in poor countries not because the culture is more like corrupt it's because people need money and that's crime is the only way to do it like why are dutch people so nice and so they're so nice to their kids it's welfare i mean of course it's amazing that the dutch built this system it took decades no centuries of of hard work right so it's very impressive but yeah so i think academia is an example of a place that really lacks resources and it's getting less and less because there's less and less funding from the government for universities and so it creates this toxic um behavior because people are desperate so that was my like yeah my conclusion from my recent experience and then also my recent experience made me realize I haven't explored so much like the world of industry and like, you know, just working at a at a consultancy or, you know, working as a GIS, so spatial analyst, like you can go a lot of places, even supermarkets need spatial analysis. It's true, Young yeah. has a whole tech department, which I yeah. thought was really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But it's nice to know that you sort of, because when I think of your career, Tanya, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think of you going really broad with architecture because you were interested in research and a lot of different types. You sort of narrowed down into what you're studying and what you're researching with your PhD. And now it sounds like you're coming back out and you're sort of exploring different paths again, which is an interesting little diagram in my head. Yeah. Although I'm not diverging in the topic. I realized I really like spatial analysis and spatial data science. So it's more like, I don't care where I do it, as long as it's that. I can do it at Albert Hein. I could do it in the university. I could do it for anyone, as long as it's that, because it brings me a lot of pleasure. Short note, Albert Hein is a supermarket in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess just imagining that diagram, like in terms of, sorry, I'm being very boring and pragmatic, but in terms of like skill sets, do you find that you're also narrowing down and like specializing in something? Because I, I I heard you mention coding and GIS, you know, like these are tools that are kind of, you need to spend time and practice and develop and you get very kind of, uh, the funnel kind of narrows down, in my opinion, anyway, it seems like, you know. Compared to, for example, like the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, which is um, communications, is partly because the skills you need, there's not many. I mean, you, it's not a very, I mean, okay. in, the, in the sense that it's very, it's very <laughs> broad and you can develop it and kind of, you can kind of improvise. Like, it, I, I think what you mean is hard and soft skills. I think communications requires a lot of soft skills, fewer like hard skills. Thanks, Alexis, for, doing, for doing my job. <laughs> But yeah, I guess it's like kind you... of like it's kind of like a musician, right? Anyone can like press on the piano, but there are not many good pianists. Yeah, it's probably the same with communications. Anyone can write. Most people can write. You can try. You can try to write. But I guess do you see yourself with um? Because I guess with architecture as well, like it's in terms of skill sets, you need to have so many things like in just in terms of software there's so many things and then you think of like having to present it and then having to think have a business acumen and all of this kind of stuff like this a lot of skill sets that you're you're and I'm not saying that you're not versatile but I'm just kind of in my head I'm thinking like are you specializing in something I guess 
Yeah, you feel like sure. you are. Yeah. Yeah. So I do all my work in Python now. So I learned how to code in the pandemic. And then I just do everything in Python now. And that's that's much more specific than than doing architecture, which is yeah, a lot of other skill sets. It's interesting because architecture is one discipline that requires a lot of skills. And then now I have one skill that can be applied to many disciplines. Oh my gosh, yes. That is such a great way of putting it. <laughs> oh, that, that is a quote that deserves to be on a t-shirt. <laughs> but I think it's the to me, what I see is the depth. You have sort of, I don't know if you've mastered, but it's the depth, right? Whereas with architecture, we sort of touch on a lot of tools, but we don't necessarily need to master them because our focus is on just trying to get the stuff done. And that's why we're using our tools. And I suppose that's a little bit different. But anyway, thanks so much for this, Tanya. I think I think this has to be another session because I, I would love to dive into like how you think with coding languages and versus you know thinking with visualizing and collaging <gasps> yeah that's a whole different topic of like the methodology or something influencing the outcome but yeah thank you so much this was really fun yeah thank you for having me yeah and I'm sure I, I think like you know like Alexis well for me I'm I'm interested in the actual research you're doing and like the outcomes of it I would love to see what you know where you think uh, circular economy is going to go and all of that um, and I'm sure the listeners are Whoa, might have might have other questions as well. So how can they find more of you, and how do they get in touch with you? So I'm most active on LinkedIn um, under the name Tanya Tui, and then I also have a Medium account where I have three articles. <laughs> one of them is great. No, all of them are great, but one in particular is like oof. Yeah. So these are articles on data science or spatial data science. So these are the side projects that I do for fun so see you there I'm very active on LinkedIn okay we will link them in the show notes uh definitely check it out check out Tanya's work all right thanks everyone thank you thank you bye bye